bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, June 28, 2011. I will start this week's podcast with our usual update on tax reform and deficit reduction talks in Washington, D.C. In the long Housing Tax Credit segment, I'll review a call to action from the Housing Advisory Group, as well as a report from the Federal Housing Finance Agency about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and also an interesting situation in Texas, where a governor's veto has put into question the future of the state's long-term housing tax credit allocating agency. In our new market tax credit discussion, I'll share the latest news about the ninth round of new market tax credit applications, as well as a new call for the extension of the new market tax credit in the United States Senate. In our renewable energy tax credit discussion, I'll share some of the findings of a report about trends in solar demand, manufacturing, and pricing. And finally, in historic tax credit news, I have good news on the facade easement front in the form of a favorable ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, a successful conclusion to the deficit reduction talks led by Vice President Joe Biden came into serious doubt last week when House Majority Leader Eric Cantor dropped out of the group. Majority Leader Cantor said, that he would not participate in the talks until President Barack Obama personally resolves the divisive issue of taxes. Senate Minority Whip John Kyle followed Cantor's lead and also pulled out of the talks. In addition, Senators Kyle and McConnell issued a joint statement on Thursday saying any negotiations that involve tax increases are essentially a non-starter. There was early speculation last week that the so-called Gang of Six, which some are referring to as the Five Guys, since the departure of Senator Tom Coburn, might be able to step in and help bridge the gap between the two sides. But it's unclear if that's a realistic option. With Kyle and Cantor abstaining from the negotiations, The remaining members of the Biden group are the following Democrats. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus, Senate Appropriations Chairman Daniel Inouye, Assistant House Minority Leader James Clyburn, and House Budget Committee Ranking Member Chris Van Hollen. Regular listeners to this podcast may recall that even in the first days after President Obama's proposal that this group be formed, there was doubt about whether or not its members could reach an agreement. Furthermore, at the time, when asked if the Biden-led talks were just a diversion, while agreement was quietly negotiated elsewhere, Representative Van Hollen had said, quote, Well, I guess we'll have to ask the Vice President the answer to that question. The jury is still out. Close quote. 
And that leads us to this week's Quote of the Week. Fox News reports that a doleful Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, talking to reporters about the end of the bipartisan talks over the federal debt limit, said, quote, I think that now, with what Kyle and Cantor have done, it's in the hands of the Speaker and the President and, sadly, probably me. Close quote. As of Friday, Reed said he had not received an invitation to any formal meetings with the President and Speaker. Senate Majority Leader Reed and Senate Minority Leader McConnell did, however, have separate meetings with the President yesterday. The overall goal appears to be about a $2.5 trillion in deficit reduction over about 10 years. USA Today reports that about three-fifths of that amount has been achieved, and that's about $1.5 trillion. Those identified savings include a four- to five-year domestic spending freeze, excluding Social Security and Medicare, as well as some defense spending cuts, ending federal payments to farmers that earn more than $250,000 a year, and changing certain federal worker pension benefit rules. So please follow me on Twitter, and I'll give you additional updates in the coming week. And then we'll have more updates on the deficit reduction talks in next week's podcast. Turning to legislative activity in the House of Representatives, the House last week passed H.R. 1249 the America Invents Act, and it passed by a vote of 304 to 117. The legislation bans tax strategy patents by deeming any strategy for reducing, avoiding, or deferring tax liability to be insufficient to differentiate a claimed invention from prior art. Because a patent cannot be claimed on something that is not new or that is obvious prior art, that will invalidate a patent. The Senate passed its version of the legislation, Senate Bill 23, by a vote of 95 to 5 in March, and the White House has signaled its support for the law. Now, there was an amendment offered by Representative Jared Polis that would have eliminated the applicability of the ban to patents that are currently pending, making the ban solely to patents filed on or after the effective day of the new legislation. That amendment, however, was defeated by a voice vote before the final bill did pass on Thursday. The bill now must be reconciled with the legislation that was approved in the Senate. In local housing tax credit news, last week, the Housing Advisory Group called on the affordable housing community to speak out in support of the low-income housing tax credit. The group reports that in recent meetings with Senate leadership, Senators were encouraging low-income housing tax credit advocates to increase their efforts on behalf of the program. The group reports that lawmakers emphasized the constant drumbeat for deficit reduction and the risk that constant drumbeat poses to all federal programs. As such, the Housing Advisory Group encouraged its members last week and the low-income housing tax credit community at large to promote the success of the Long Housing Tax Credit Program with opinion leaders. A collection of tools to assist in those efforts, such as template letters and invitations, are available 
on the Housing Advisory Group website. To get links to these important materials and to follow updates directly from the Housing Advisory Group, I encourage you to follow them on Twitter at twitter.com backslash housing ADV group. And if you follow me on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Novogratic, you can find the Housing Advisory Group's Twitter feeds in the list of accounts that I follow. Turning to the state of Texas, a routine sunset bill allowing the state's Department of Housing and Community Affairs to continue functioning was rejected by the governor. HB 2608 was one of 24 bills that Governor Rick Perry vetoed on June 17th. The sunset bill would have continued agency operations through 2023 and adopted most of the Sunset Advisory Commission's recommendations. Most of the changes were clarifications on administrative procedures. However, the Commission did recommend a substantive change regarding disaster management planning that made its way into the bill. HB 2608 would have required TDHCA or another state agency and the Governor's Office to develop a long-term plan to administer federal disaster recovery funds. It also required the governor to designate a state agency or office to coordinate the distribution of those funds. Governor Perry said in his veto statement that those provisions would impose a new layer of bureaucracy and resulted in delayed response to disaster-struck communities. To avoid a potential shutdown of TDHCA next year, the governor has asked the legislature to include an extension of the agency's operations in pending legislation during its special session. If no action is taken during the legislature's special session, which is scheduled to adjourn no later than midnight tomorrow, TDHCA would wind down its operations. The programs and funds it administers would either be shifted to another office or they would cease to exist. Agency shutdown is not a desirable outcome for the governor's office, which is working closely with the legislature to add language for a short-term extension. Such language would be added to Senate Bill 1 of the special session. All of this according to a spokesperson from the governor's office. In its current form, the bill provides for an extension until 2013. In the meantime, the governor's office said the veto and the extension process will not, that's right, will not, affect TDHCA's programs and daily operations. Now, turning to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the Federal Housing Finance Agency released its annual report to Congress on June 13th. The report details the findings of FHFA's 2010 annual examinations of Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, the 12 federal home loan banks, and their Office of Finance. Overall, the FHFA report states that the enterprise's losses totaled $28 billion in 2010. Now, in examining Fannie Mae's multifamily activities, FHFA concluded that the multifamily loan division satisfactorily managed its risks and that reporting continues to improve. Asset management is also timely and responsive to issues 
regarding problem loans. FHFA found that Fannie Mae's policies for debt restructuring and impairments for its trouble properties differed significantly from those of Freddie Mac. FHFA is working with the enterprises to reduce those differences. FHFA rated credit risk management as a critical concern, but said that extremely responsive management contributed to strong multifamily risk management. FHFA also concluded Fannie Mae successfully managed its liquidity issues, in part by the securitization of $10.7 billion in multifamily loans. As for Freddie Mac, FHFA identified its multifamily business as one of the areas most in need of correction. FHFA called multifamily credit risk management unsatisfactory. Specifically, the agency said multifamily asset management was poorly managed and lacked the necessary process and controls to identify, evaluate, and control problem assets. FHFA said that Freddie Mac had taken steps to correct the problem, however, by clarifying the roles of the multifamily division. The FHFA also evaluated the enterprises on their affordable housing goals, and it found that their performance exceeded their low-income housing family goals and very low-income family sub-goals, that in 2010. Now, these are just some of the highlights of the 127-page report. You can find the entire report on the GSE Hot Topics page at www.novaco.com. In New Market Tax Credit news, the online application for the 2011 round of New Market Tax Credit allocation applications was posted yesterday by the CDFI Fund. The application can be found online at www.cdfifund.gov. A link to the online application can also be found online at www.newmarketscredits.com. But before you delve into the application, I invite you to watch Novogratz & Company's NMTC application webinar. A recording of the webinar is available for purchase online at www.novoco.com events. And if you have questions, or if you would like Novogratz & Company to assist you with your new market test for application, I encourage you to call my partner, Owen Gray, in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. Now, turning to the U.S. Senate, last week, while in New York, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand announced her new manufacturing agenda. Senator Gillibrand's office reports that manufacturing accounts for approximately 11% of the country's GDP and employs an estimated 11 million Americans. Her office also asserts that every dollar invested in manufacturing operations directly fosters $1.40 in economic activity and every newly created manufacturing job creates two and a half other new jobs across the local economy. Now, Senator Gillibrand's plan would create a Make It in America competitive grant program to provide small to medium-sized manufacturers in communities that have high unemployment with new resources and strategies to retool their operations and retrain their workforce for advanced manufacturing, such as clean energy, computer technology, aerospace, and biotechnology. In addition, and this is what's of most note to most of our listeners, Senator Gillibrand's agenda includes two tax credit proposals 
one, extending and expanding the Section 48 Cap C Clean Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit, and two, extending the New Markets Tax Credit to leverage more private investment into manufacturers and some of New York's hardest-hit communities, Senator Gillibrand has put her support behind the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act. That legislation, as most of our listeners know, would extend the New Market Tax Credit Program, which so far has generated almost $50 billion in financing to businesses in some of the most economically distressed communities in America. Senator Gillibrand's office reports that 155 businesses in New York have benefited from more than $1.4 billion in new market tax credits to date. In renewable energy tax credit news, the Solar Energy Industries Association, or SIA, and GTM Research released a report titled Q1 2011 U.S. Solar Market Insight. The quarterly report identifies and analyzes trends in solar demand, solar manufacturing, and solar pricing by state and by market segment. SIA uses the information to forecast demand over the next five years. The report found that for first quarter 2011, photovoltaic, or PV, installations continue to be the largest component of solar market growth in the United States, and 88% of PV installed were in seven states, California, New Jersey, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Colorado, New York, and Massachusetts. The United States installed 252 megawatts of grid-connected PV. This is 66% more than was installed in the first quarter of 2010. Part of this increase, however, was due to developers starting construction in the fourth quarter of 2010. 10 to claim the Section 1603 cash grants, or at least to qualify for the cash grants, before the anticipated expiration date at the end of 2010. Non-residential sector installations increased by 120% over first quarter 2010. The Section 1603 grants did not have as much of an effect on residential solar installations. The report shows that residential solar installations only grew marginally over first quarter 2010. Now, according to the report, SIG anticipates, and I quote, an exciting, if volatile, year in the U.S. PV market, close quote. SIG anticipates that 2011 will be a record year for utility installations. The report found that improvements in market fundamentals, including lower module prices, expansion of residential solar lease models, and step market incentives have resulted in an increase in solar installations. Because the Section 1603 grants are set to expire at the end of 2011, SIA anticipates a similar mid-year boom in incentive applications, a late-year boom in module and inverter shipments, and a first-quarter 2012 boom in non-residential installations. So if you're interested in viewing the full report, I'd invite you to visit the SEA website at www.seia.org. In historic tax credit news, the historic preservation community received some good news last week. This in the area of facade easements. As many listeners know, the IRS has been auditing and challenging 
donations of historic preservation easements in recent years. In the case, Simmons v. Commissioner, the IRS claimed that the donor of two preservation easements in Washington, D.C.'s Logan Circle Historic District failed to comply with certain statutory and regulatory requirements that invalidated her donation and the resulting deduction she was claiming. The IRS also claimed that even if the donor did meet these requirements, the easements had no value. Now, in 2009, the tax court rejected these arguments and allowed the deduction. The IRS, however, filed an appeal of the tax court's ruling with the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. The National Trust, the L'Enfant Trust, and the Foundation for the Preservation of Historic Georgetown filed a joint amicus brief in support of the donor. In a decision affirming the tax court's 2009 ruling, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia agreed that the donor was entitled to the deduction. Now, there is some hope in the preservation community that this recent Court of Appeals ruling could provide helpful precedent for other easement donors in similar situations. A copy of the decision can be found online at www.historictaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.